Welcome to this second lecture on uh, Genesis for Old Testament Introduction, Part 1. And as we saw last time, God created the heavens and the earth as a cosmic theater of His glory, as a temple in which uh, He would be specially present with man, in which man would know and worship and serve the Lord. But Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden, out of that special garden temple. And then the Lord uh, cursed the serpent, and then He made the woman and the man's roles more difficult. <clears throat> and what I'd like to do quickly is walk through the book of Genesis and highlight some of the ways that those curses now are, are echoed through the pages of the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 13, we get to Genesis 13, 13, and we read that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And this is setting up what we eventually find in Genesis 19 as, as God destroys Sodom. But the sin of Sodom, I would suggest, is an outworking of that curse on gender relations. The, 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 the difficulty in childbearing and the woman wanting to rule over the man, I think, finds expression in this sexual deviancy. I would suggest that also, <clears throat> similarly, when, as I said in the last time, when Sarah concocts this plan to send uh, Abram into Hagar, this is another instance, or this is an instance of the woman taking authority and, and, and then we see an, an outworking of, of sexual dysfunction as, as Abram takes Hagar, the second wife. Um, we also see this after Lot is delivered from Sodom when he, he gets out and he gets into this cave and his two daughters make him drunk and then lie with their father. And, and I would suggest this is an outworking of the curse on Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. But <clears throat> but God is greater than the curse. And so there are places where God overcomes these curses, and one of those is when the Lord visits Sarah, as He had promised, and gives to her a child, and, and Isaac is born. So Abraham's seed comes as a fulfillment of God's promise to, to give him offspring. As we continue through the narrative, we see other instances of of this, these problematic relations between males and females as uh, you'll, you'll remember what happens with Jacob and Esau. It's Jacob's mother, um, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, who concocts this plan for Jacob to steal Esau's blessing. And, and I think, again, we have this outworking of the curse of Genesis 3.16 where the woman is trying to take take over the situation. And then once Jacob gets married, um, like uh, Sarah, Jacob's wife uh, Rachel, who is his favorite wife, is, is barren. And Jacob has to intercede with the Lord for his wife. And so the Lord opens um, Rachel's womb. And, and again, I would see that as an outworking of that curse. Uh, over in the, in, the, in the narrative in Genesis 37 through 50, when we get to the Joseph narrative, um, you'll remember that um, when Joseph is sold into slavery, uh, Potiphar's wife tries to make him lie with her. And again, I think this is the woman uh, seeking to, uh, well, her desire is for the man. I don't think it's primarily in terms of sexual desire. I think she's want, wanting to control what the man does, that instance of it apparently was sexual desire, but I don't think that's the, the general tendency of the curse. Uh, we see a similar instance of this outworking of this curse in Genesis 38 when Tamar deceives Judah, disguises herself as a prostitute by the road, and Judah goes into her, and she has children by him. And so, so this, the outworking of, that, that aspect of the outworking of the curse uh, resonates all through the book of Genesis. What about the, the curse on the land? Well, in Genesis 12, verse 10, there's a famine in the land, and that famine drives Abram down into Egypt. And, and you may remember that there in Egypt, uh, Abram bungled along and basically gave Sarah to Pharaoh by this lie that he had told. And in spite of Abram's folly, the Lord delivered Sarah from Pharaoh and gave her back to Abram. But there are other famines, and in fact, it's a famine 
that drives Joseph's brothers to go down into to, to Egypt to, to seek food. Uh, and Joseph, in the meanwhile, has become lord of, of Egypt. And, and these famines on, in the land, I would suggest, are outworkings of the curse on the land in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And then there's the other matter of the seed and, and, and the conflict between the seeds. We've seen Cain kill Abel. <clears throat> we'll see also that Abraham has these, has these difficulties with the inhabitants of the land. And there are these, these disputes over uh, a, a well that Abraham has dug. And, and then uh, Abraham has this problem with, with Pharaoh that gets repeated with Abimelech where, where uh, these, these enemy nations, they, they take the, the woman, the, the conduit of the blessing, the one through whom the seed of the woman is going to ultimately come. But God, again, is, is greater than all of these problems. Isaac also has problems with the inhabitants of the land. And then once we get to Isaac, there's, there's not only uh, the problem with the Philistines that he has, he also has this problem with Ishmael. Ishmael is an opponent of, he's mocking Isaac, and that that enmity between the seeds, I, I think, gets repeated with Jacob and Esau. Esau wants to kill Jacob after Jacob steals his blessing. And then it gets repeated with Joseph and his brothers, where Joseph's brothers, want, they hate him, and they can't speak peacefully to him, and they want to kill him, and they ultimately sell him into slavery. I think that, that each of these things is an outworking of this curse that God has uh, has, has stated in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Curse on the, on the relationships between the seeds, curse on the relationships between the genders, and curse on the relations with the land. But it's God's promise that is going to overcome these curses. And that promise is first uttered to Abram, <clears throat> and then the promise to Abram, what happens is it gets added to. So look, for instance, at... Genesis 13, verse 15, where the Lord says to Abram, All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now, now the, the blessing in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is extended to the offspring of Abram, and it's going to be a blessing. They're going to, they're going to enjoy this land forever. And then when we get over to Genesis chapter 15, I would suggest that what's going on in Genesis 15 is Abram is doubting God's promise. So let's read through this narrative, Genesis 15, 1 and following. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless. That question assumes the promises that God has made to Abram. And the question essentially says, God, how are you going to keep these promises that you've made? I don't have any kids. And then he says here in verse 2, And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house, a member of my household, will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir, this Eliezer of Damascus. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, what, what's actually stated there in Genesis 15, verse 4, is something like, uh, what will come out of your own loins? One who will come from your own loins will be your heir. And the reason I think this is worth highlighting is because that language gets used over in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I don't think this is incidental. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the Lord says to David in, in verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body. Literally, he, he will come out of your own loins. And, and the, the phrase in Hebrew in 2 Samuel 7, 12 is very similar to the phrase in Hebrew of Genesis 15 verse uh, 4. And I think what this does he says, it forges a connection between the seed of Abram and the seed of David. And it's as though the promises are now being passed down. So, so we're, not, we're not there yet, but 
But across the Old Testament, the promise is made to the woman that her seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. Then it's extended to Abram and his seed. Then it's extended, it's narrowed in on Judah in Genesis 49. And then in the, in the, in the house of Judah, it's narrowed in on David in, in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. At any rate, back here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, uh, the Lord promises that Abram's heir is going to come from his own body. It's not going to be some kind of foster or adoptive situation. Verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So the Lord has reiterated the promise to Abram and is assuring him, essentially, that he's going to keep the promise made in Genesis 12 too. I will make of you a great nation. Tells him to look at the stars. So in this way shall your offspring be. And look at what the text tells us in Genesis 15, 6. And he, this is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Sometimes in these narratives, people who interpret them want to emphasize Abram's or Abraham's obedience. I actually don't think that's so much the emphasis as, as it is the, the emphasis is on the Word of God, the power of the Word of God to command assent. So, I, in other words, I don't think the point is so much that, that Abraham was an obedient man as it is the point being God says go and Abraham goes. There is nothing more compelling in heaven or on earth than the Lord. And when the Lord appears to Abram, Abram's attitude is whatever he says, Whatever it costs me, I'm doing what he says because he looks more intimidating, more impressive, and, and by the same token, uh, more able to keep his promises than anything else or anyone else who's making promises to me. So I'm trusting what this God is saying to me. I think that that's the, the emphasis in these narratives. And I would also say that uh, we shouldn't whitewash Abraham. These narratives don't whitewash him. These narratives show him to be a struggler. He's a sojourner. He's a, he's a sinner just like we are. So Abram's not, not some uh, remarkably, uniquely obedient person who somehow earns God's favor. Abram's a sinner who, who uh, is so concerned about himself that he's willing to risk his wife's life to protect his own life, even though that's the wife through whom the promised seed is going to come. And so God has to overcome Abram's sin, his sinful self-protectionism, and restore Sarah to him. Not once, but twice does this happen. <clears throat> so Abram believes what the Lord says in Genesis 15, 6, and he, this is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. This is very significant because this text is not telling us Abraham obeyed and thereby was made righteous. This text is telling us Abraham believed God's promise. And as a result of Abraham believing God's promise, God is counting his faith. God is counting it to him, counting his belief for righteousness. So, in other words, it's not that Abraham does righteous things. He's a sinner like anybody else. It's that Abraham believes what God says. And in, res in, in response to that faith, God reckons Abram righteous. <clears throat> and I think we see this in particular over in Genesis chapter 26 when we read, as the Lord makes this promise to Isaac, in Genesis 26, 5, uh, the Lord says to Isaac, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, I think the sense in which Abraham obeyed was the sense in which he believed and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. So I would su suggest that Genesis 15.6 sets up a controlling grid for the interpretation of Genesis 26.5. I think that Paul's opponents, who argued, argued, some of them at least, that you had to be righteous on the basis of what you did, they wanted to set up Genesis 26.5 as the contro controlling grid through which Genesis 15.6 is read. And, and I think Paul argues convincingly that they're incorrect. So uh, the Lord makes this promise to Abram and then in the midst of, of uh, reaffirming this covenant to Abram, 
Look at what the Lord says to him in Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So essentially, the Lord is predicting Israel's sojourn in Egypt, and they're, they're being enslaved down in Egypt. But then this is going to be remedied by verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The Lord's promise to Abraham predicts Israel's enslavement in Egypt, and it predicts the exodus from Egypt, and it predicts the way that Israel would, would plunder the Egyptians, as we read in Exodus when they asked uh, those various articles of gold and silver and precious stones from the Egyptians, and they plundered the Egyptians when they departed from them. So the Lord prophesies all this. And notice also that the Lord is going to deliver Israel through the judgment of Egypt. So the reason I keep emphasizing this salvation that comes through judgment is because I think what this does is it demonstrates God's glory, both in the glory of His justice and, and the demonstration of His righteous wrath against His enemies, and it demonstrates His mercy in the deliverance that He works through the judgment for, for the people who believe, the people who are the seed of the woman, the people who, who, whom He reckons righteous because they trust. So this salvation through judgment displays the glory both of God's justice and of, his, of God's mercy. And I think that the central theme of biblical theology is the display of God's glory in salvation that comes through judgment with the judgment highlighting the mercy. And the supreme instance of this is going to be when Christ dies on the cross as God upholds His righteousness and makes a way so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God shows mercy in a righteous and just way. It's, it's a miracle, really, the way that God does this. It's, it's marvelous. And, and this is the display of God's glory. And this is what the whole Bible is about. It's about the glory of God in salvation through judgment. And I would I would uh, point you to my book by that title, which, Lord willing, will be published by Crossway in 2010, assuming I get it done by the end of this year. At any rate, <clears throat> these promises are made to Abram, and then God confirms the promises when the smoking fire pot passes through the midst of these uh, pieces of this uh, sacrificial animal that, that Abram has cut in half. And then the narrative in Genesis 16 about the birth of Ishmael, and I want to draw your attention over in Genesis 18 to another addition to the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So look at Genesis chapter 18, and as Abraham is, is about to intercede with God on behalf of Sodom, the Lord says in verse 17 of Genesis 18, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. This is echoing Genesis 12, 2, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Well, that's the exact language of Genesis 12:3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 18:19. For I have chosen him, that he might he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So the Lord reiterates this promise that He first made in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then it comes up again over in Genesis 22 uh, when Abram obeys and goes to sacrifice Isaac. And we read in, in uh, Genesis 22, verses 17 and following, after Abram has uh, been willing to sacrifice Isaac, and the Lord has provided a ram. We read in verse 17, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now notice how right there, I think the ESV has this correct. Other translations may have, your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, but I think the singular is correct. That's what the Hebrew has, a singular pronoun, not a plural. So uh, 
right there in Genesis 22:17, the singular offspring of Abram, Abraham is going to conquer and possess the gate of his enemies. And then look at verse 18 where we have the collective, the plural, the group seed. Verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I'm sorry, it, it was right above that in verse 17. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. That's where you have the group seed, and then it narrows on the individual seed who's going to possess the gate of his enemies in verse 17. So both aspects are there in verse 17, I'm sorry. But, but through the offspring of Abraham, possessing the gate of his enemies, through that, verse 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We read the same language reiterated of Rebekah, when Abraham's servant goes and finds her, and Rebekah's people say of her in Genesis 24, 60, they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring, so she's going to be multiplied, and may your offspring possess the gate, and, and here the ESV inexplicably has it wrong, but it's another singular pronoun. It should be a singular. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So once again, the offspring of Rebekah is going to be a group, and it's going to be an individual who's going to triumph over his enemies. So this, this promise to Abraham, now notice, this was stated to Rebekah. That's Isaac's wife. This extends the promise from Abraham to Isaac. And that is explicitly reiterated in Genesis 26, verses 1 and following. Genesis 26, 1, now there was a famine in the land outworking of Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. This is the language of the blessing that was given to Abraham. And then he makes it explicit in the middle of verse 3. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And here's a quotation of Genesis 12:3. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise that was made to Abraham is now extended to Isaac. And then from Isaac, it's passed on to Jacob. And we see this in Genesis 27. And note how in Genesis 27, verse 29, as, as Isaac is in the midst of blessing uh, Jacob, he says in verse 29 of Genesis 27, Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. And now in the, in the last phrases of Genesis 27, 29, Genesis 12, verse 3 is going to be reformulated. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Genesis 27, 29, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is an intentional reuse of the same language to show that this, this promise, this blessing that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is now being passed from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob. And before we go on, let me also note something that I passed over back in Genesis chapter 17. As the Lord is promising to Abraham in Genesis, 12, or Genesis 17 that he is going to multiply him, Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. This promise is a king from the line of Abraham. And then it's the same thing is said regarding Sarah in verse 16 of Genesis 17. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So uh, the, as, the, as the promise is being passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, the promise is being filled out, and it includes this idea that there's going to come a royal figure from the line of Abraham, who is the seed ultimately of Noah, who is the seed of Adam, and through, through Adam, with Adam comes the seed of the woman. So, so the reason Genesis is interested to establish these things is because this line of descent 
Uh, what's at stake in this line of descent is God's faithfulness to His Word. So the, the continuation of this line of descent is going to establish God's promise to the woman back in Genesis 3.15. It's passed, uh, ex more, again explicitly, to, uh, from uh, Isaac to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. With Genesis 28.1, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And then look at Genesis 28.4. May he give you the blessing of Abraham. And notice how Genesis 28.3 and 4 unites the blessing or, or the charge given to Adam with the blessing of Abraham. So Genesis 28.3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, fruitful and multiply language, Genesis 1.28, that you may become a company of peoples. May He give you the blessing of Abraham. So if there's any doubt that what God wanted to accomplish with Adam is the same thing that He's trying to accomplish with trying to accomplish with Abraham, if there's any doubt about that, the author of Genesis, I think Moses, is taking pains to remove that doubt and to show that what God is after with Adam is being carried forward through the descendants of Abraham. As we continue through the book of Genesis, let me draw your attention now to the story. There's, there's so much here that we could talk about. Um, let me just highlight a couple of things. Notice how uh, to Jacob, uh, Genesis 17, 6 and 16, which speak of a king coming from, from Abraham and Sarah. That's restated to Jacob in Genesis 35, verse 11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. This is reiterating the blessing that Isaac spoke over Jacob. And then we eventually arrive at Genesis 37, and we get to these narratives of Joseph. And I would like to suggest that what happens with Joseph is <coughs> the author of Genesis notices uh, these, these patterns. And these patterns have been developing from Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and now they're going to be repeated with Jacob, with, with Joseph, I'm sorry, and his brothers. And, and this pattern involves enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And ironically, the seed of the serpent in Genesis 37 through 50 are Joseph's brothers, the tribes of Israel. But if you're, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this is not surprising, because John the Baptist and Jesus both call the Pharisees, the people of Israel, a brood of vipers. That's just another way of saying seed of the serpent. So Joseph's brothers prove themselves to be seed of the serpent, but, but there's hope because they, they wind up repenting and bowing the knee to Joseph later in the narrative. And, um, and so I think the narrative is showing that if people repent and, and submit to God's, God's appointed deliverer, if people will do that, they can be reconciled. And this is teaching important lessons about what it, what it means to know God and what it means to walk with God. In these narratives about Joseph, then, I would suggest that patterns from earlier chapters in Genesis are being revisited and, and highlighted, and then these same patterns are going to be used uh, or, or they're going to be noted when they recur in the life of David. And I think there's a divine hand behind these patterns. I think that God is sovereignly building into history a typological correspondence between Joseph and David, and then it's ultimately going to be realized in Jesus. And if you'd like to read further about that, I, I have an article called, Was Joseph a Type of the Messiah? And you can access that article on my website. Um, you can go to that website and, and search it. The, the address is jimhamilton.info. If you go there and search for Was Joseph a Type of the Messiah, it's sure to come up. Or you can go to the Articles and Essays page and find it for yourself. At any rate, we come to this, this story of, of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 40, and let's read what we find here. Genesis 37, 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And let's just observe that the, the patriarchs, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, these guys are all regarded as sojourning in the land. 
They lived in the land of Canaan. Verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. And then he goes straight to Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. So you remember that earlier in the narrative, Abel was pasturing the flock. And, and then later in, in, in 1 Samuel, it's David who's going to be pasturing the flock. And in between, Moses is going to be one who pastures the flock. And I don't think this is incidental because with each one of these figures, what you have is opposition from what's supposed to be the people of God itself. So uh, with Cain and Abel, Cain is supposed to be a descendant of the woman, a seed of the woman. Well, he kills Abel. And now uh, Joseph is shepherding the flock and he's going to be opposed by his brothers. Moses uh, is shepherding the flock and then he goes to deliver Israel and they oppose him, his brother, his own kinsmen do. Uh, when, when David is identified as um, the Lord's anointed, how does Israel, how does the, uh, the authority structure in Israel respond? Well, Saul starts throwing spears at David. Uh, so he doesn't appreciate this. And so this, I think this sets up a pattern in the Old Testament of opposition to the Lord's designated deliverer that comes from within the people of God itself. And this is what we see ultimately realized and fulfilled in Jesus when, when it's the people of Israel who reject him and have him put on the cross. So Joseph was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and, and then it goes on, and um, we're told a number of things about Joseph, but what I want to do now is, is pass down to chapter 38 and look at the way that, um, that Judah has, this, um, has children via Tamar. And, and I don't, actually, I don't want to read through this carefully. I just want to summarize what happens and then observe some things that happen with Judah as we proceed through the book of, of Genesis. And so uh, Judah has these sons who prove themselves to be wicked, and they, they won't uh, do what they're supposed to do, and so the Lord strikes them dead. And so uh, Judah uh, decides not to give any more of his sons to this wife, named Tamar, and then you remember she disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah goes into her, and then um, she gives birth to these two uh, young men, Perez and Zerah, these twins, who were born to Judah. And so, so this is not pretty, is it? The book of Genesis is not whitewashing the patriarchs. The book of Genesis has shown us Abraham essentially trying to give Sarah away to both uh, Pharaoh and then later Abimelech. Isaac does the same thing with Rebekah. He gives her away to Abimelech. And uh, Jacob is no saint. He's a scoundrel. He steals his brother's birthright. Then he steals his brother's blessing. And then he steals his father-in-law's flocks. And in the midst of all this sinning, God is the one who's blessing Jacob. And then this guy Judah, the narrative is showing us, he's a scoundrel. He's the kind of guy who, if he can get away with it, will visit a prostitute. Which is really, it's somewhat depressing that to, to see this kind of thing happen in what's supposed to be the people of God. It's depressing, but at the same time, it's realistic. The Bible is not whitewashing, it's heroes. So this is who Judah is, and this is where Perez, Perez and Zerah come from. And then when we, when we return to the narrative of Joseph, uh, through the narrative, uh, you remember that Jacob wants to send his brothers down to Joseph in Egypt to buy food from them. And in the meanwhile, What's happened with Joseph in Egypt is he has interpreted these dreams and been exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, and there's a sense in which all the nations of the earth are being blessed through the seed of Abraham, as, as every, all, all the people of the world, uh, Genesis tells us. Genesis tells us that, that uh, uh, the famine was severe. Uh, in Genesis 41:57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So through Joseph, all the earth is being blessed through, through the Lord's provision that he's made through this descendant of Abraham. Well, his brothers come down, and uh, Jacob didn't send Benjamin. And then uh, Joseph says to them, he basically asks some questions, pries the information from them that they have this brother Benjamin who has not come down with them. And then um, he says to them, unless you bring your brother back, I'm not, you're, you're not going to see my face again. You, you won't be able to buy more bread for me unless you bring, unless you bring Benjamin next time you come. And, 
And then when Jacob wants to send his sons down again, look at Genesis chapter 42, uh, verse 36. Uh, they want to take Benjamin with them because of what Joseph said to them. And Genesis 42:36, Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, because Joseph had kept him captive back in Egypt. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father. Now, Reuben's the firstborn. But Reuben, we read elsewhere earlier in Genesis, he has defiled his father's couch. So he's... He's disqualified himself by his sexual immorality. And nevertheless, as the firstborn, he steps forward and he says in verse 37, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Verse 38, but he said, My son shall not go with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. So Reuben steps forward and Jacob won't take Reuben's offer to, of his two sons as security, as surety for Benjamin's life. But then in Genesis 43, look down at verse 8. After they've gone through this whole thing, we're not going unless you send Benjamin with us because the man promised us we wouldn't see his face unless Benjamin was with us. Judah said, Genesis 43, 8, to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you also and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. So Reuben offers his two sons as a pledge. Jacob rejects it. Judah now offers himself as a pledge, and Jacob receives it. And, and it seems now that what, what's happening in the narrative is Judah's character is being shown to have grown. Judah is, I think, uh, someone who is shown to be repentant, and he is now willing to put himself on the line for the good of others. And um, then in uh, Genesis 44, verse 18, Judah goes up to Joseph and he intercedes. He, he essentially prays to Joseph to show mercy to him and his brothers. So Judah is on the rise through these narratives. And then when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he, he says that God has sent him Look at, look at Genesis 45, 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you've sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I think this is going to be another one of those programmatic, typologically significant features of the narrative because what's going to happen later in, in the Bible is this young man, Daniel, is going to be uh, taken captive into exile. And it's almost as though Daniel is going to be a new Joseph. And, and you, can, you can walk through these two narratives of Joseph and Daniel and find all kinds of parallels. So Joseph can interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and there are two of these dreams. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream in, in Daniel 2. And then in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another vision, and Joseph, uh, Daniel interprets that too. In response to his ability to, to interpret the dream, Pharaoh says to Joseph, this is a man in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Nebuchadnezzar says the same thing about Daniel. Joseph is exalted to Pharaoh's right hand. Essentially the same thing happens with Daniel. Uh, Joseph is, he's set up at a time in Israel's history where it's almost as though he's, he's uh, laying the, the, the groundwork, the framework for the exodus from Egypt. And what's going to happen between Joseph and Daniel through the narratives of the Old Testament is after the exodus from Egypt, those who prophesy about Israel's future, they're going to speak of God's future act of deliverance of his people in terms that are reminiscent of and based on God's act of deliverance at the exodus from Egypt. And so what the prophets are going to prophesy once the exodus has happened is essentially a new exodus. And, and it's almost as though the book of Daniel, Daniel is presenting himself, I, I think it, the most natural reading would see Daniel as the author of this book, uh, Daniel is presenting himself as playing the same role in salvation history that Joseph played for the people of God, uh, preparing the way, Joseph preparing the way for the Exodus, Daniel preparing the way for the new Exodus. And I think this is something that the biblical authors intended. I think that, that Daniel noticed these things about Joseph. Daniel noticed. Uh, Genesis chapter 45, verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. 
and Daniel figures out, he, he sees all these things that happen in his life, and he says, hey, it looks like everything that happened to Joseph is happening to me. And, and then it's as though he, he, he comes to the conviction that maybe he plays a similar role for God's people in his day that Joseph played in his day. And I think that this is the way that the Bible treats the people of God. The, the, throughout the Bible, the people of God are going to be opposed by their enemies. They're going to be mocked and, and uh, persecuted and maybe at times even killed. And that's what the New Testament promises to the people of God. And the reason that's what the New Testament promises to the people of God is because that's what the people of God have always experienced. And it was fulfilled, it was ultimately realized, typologically fulfilled, in Jesus, who was, who was supremely rejected in an unjust way and, 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 and killed on, to, in order that he would be a, a, a spiritual benefit to other people, that he would accomplish salvation. And, and this, is, this is the pattern, I think, of the whole Bible. So uh, returning to these narratives of Joseph, um, let's just observe the way that in Genesis 46, verse 1, when Israel does go down, Israel being Jacob, who's been renamed at this point, when he does go down into Egypt, look at Genesis 46, 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Night visions are going to be very significant in the Hebrew Bible, and they're already happening in Genesis. Zechariah is going to have this series of night visions. Nathan gets the revelation that he gives to David in 2 Samuel 7 in a vision of the night. And, and we could go on and on listing these. Um, so Jacob uh, has this night vision, and Genesis 46.3, the Lord says to him, I am, the, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. We've heard that before, haven't we? Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. Jacob is having the promises to Abraham, the blessings of Abraham reiterated to him. Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So what was prophesied to Abraham about his, his descendants being enslaved in a land not their own for 400 years, and then being brought up, I think that's, that's reiterated here to Jacob when the Lord appears to him. And then... Uh, Jacob goes down into Egypt, and um, he blesses the children of Joseph in Genesis 48, and then he blesses his, um, all of his sons. And um, let, me, let me just observe that it almost looks, when, 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 when uh, Jacob blesses the children of Joseph in Genesis 48, it almost looks like the line of Joseph is going to be the favored line the line through which the Messiah might come. So look, for instance, at Genesis 48, verse 19, where uh, speaking of Ephraim, who was uh, uh, the younger brother of Manasseh, uh, we read in the middle of verse 19 of Genesis 48, his younger brother, speaking of uh, Manasseh, shall be greater than he, and his offspring, this is Ephraim's, I think, his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And then look over at the blessing of Joseph over in Genesis chapter 49, verses 22 and following. Genesis 49, 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. So there's this fertility and this, this uh, fecundity, the, 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 the um, almost Edenic language of growth and, and the blessing of God. Verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From where? is the shepherd, from, from, or the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From Jacob? Well, that would fit. Or from Joseph? Well, this is in the blessing of Joseph. Uh, but Jacob has just been mentioned, so I think it's actually Jacob that, that from there refers to. From Jacob is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So you might conclude from Genesis 49:24 that it looks like the shepherd who's going to arise to shepherd the people of God is going to come from Joseph, but I think that's actually that would actually be a, a misreading of the text. 
and that is confirmed by the interpretation that we have later in uh, the Bible in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 where we read in um, 1 Chronicles chapter 5 verse 2 though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him so this is after David has arisen to be king in Israel Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him yet the birthright belonged to Joseph so it's almost as though the author of Chronicles who may be Ezra I don't know but the author of Chronicles is acknowledging there there are indications that look like the blessing is going to come through Joseph and yet surprise surprise the chief the ruler comes from Judah the birthright goes to Joseph but the king the chief comes from Judah so in Genesis 49, I think we have uh, the basis for that interpretation that we just saw in Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 5.2. And in Genesis 49, as Jacob is blessing his sons, he starts with Reuben in verse 3, then Simeon and Levi in verse 5, and then in verse 8 he turns to Judah. And he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So all the peoples are going to obey this uh, descendant of Judah who's going to wield the scepter and the ruler's staff. And it, and it goes on about Judah to describe the fertility uh, and, and the blessing of God on him in verses 11 and 12. But I read those words of verse 9, he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? I read those words because something fascinating happens over in the Balaam oracles in Numbers chapter, uh, chapters 22 through 24, where as Balaam uh, seeks to curse Israel, and all he can do is bless Israel, and I think this is reflecting Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and therefore Balaam can't curse Israel, he can only bless them. And Balaam says of Israel in Genesis 23, 24, Behold a people! As a lion, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. This language is explicitly drawn from Genesis 49, 9. So whether the pagan prophet Balaam knows of the way that Jacob blessed his sons, or whether the Holy Spirit is inspiring this pagan prophet Balaam to, to, to reuse the same language that, that Jacob used about Judah, that's what's happening. And then look at the way that uh, the promise of Genesis 12, 3 is brought together with the promise of Genesis 49, 9 in Numbers 24, verse 9. Uh, the first, he's going to start with Genesis 49, 9. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who dares rouse him up? This is almost an exact quotation in the Hebrew of Genesis 49, 9. And then he moves to Genesis 12, 3. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Now, why is this important? This is important because what it's showing, as Moses, you know, the one author of the Pentateuch, as Moses records these words of this pagan prophet, Moses, I think, means for his audience to conclude that blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is going to come through that blessing of Judah in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. And this is very significant because it, it narrows in the promise on a ruler who is seed of Judah, who is seed of Abraham, who is seed of the woman. And so I think what we, what we see as these narratives of the Old Testament unfold is that from the beginning and, and throughout the history of the people of God, those who are seed of the woman, those who are believers, those who are members of what we might call the Old Covenant remnant, those who know the Lord, they're saved by faith in God's promise 
to raise up the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, defeating evil once and for all, and roll back the curses and open the way to a new and better Garden of Eden. That's the hope that is laid out for us in the Old Testament. And the foundations of this are laid in the book of Genesis. And, and there's a great deal more that we could say about the book of Genesis. There's so much more here that uh, we have not covered. Um, but I think that these are, these are in, in some ways, the main points of the narrative. The narrative of Genesis wants to establish that God is going to pursue salvation through this line that descends uh, from Adam and, and Eve down through Noah, down through Abraham, thus the ten-member genealogies between them, and then from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob to Judah, ultimately, is the one through whom the blessing is going to come. And, and so the hope for the world, I think we can say at the end of the book of Genesis, is that these promises, the promise to Abraham that, that God would uh, bless all the nations of the earth through his seed, and thereby overcome the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, thereby overcome all remaining hostility between the genders and difficulties that arise from the curse of Genesis 3.16, and uh, restore uh, humanity to this Edenic kind of place where God is worshipped, served, known, and present the, the, this is the point of the book of Genesis, that God is going to overcome his, the curses that he visited on the land for disobedience. He's going to accomplish salvation through judgment and demonstrate thereby the glory of his justice and the glory of his mercy and the glory of God's justice. His awful wrath against sinners serves to highlight and heighten our appreciation of the glory of his mercy. We don't earn God's mercy. He distributes mercy as He pleases, as we'll see in the book of Exodus the next time we're together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.